welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Today we're talking about Genja Khan, which is an essay by Dogen Zenji, Eihei Dogen, 13th century Japanese Zen philosopher, arguably the most important philosopher in the Zen tradition. Now, as a threshold matter, I already find myself tripping over my words, which doesn't augur well for the rest of this conversation, I suppose. But even talking about Dogen as a philosopher introduces kind of an interesting challenge. And this is uh, something I've been thinking about this week. So I've had a couple of people saying nice things about the show, which is very much appreciated. And one thing that people sometimes say to me is like, oh yeah, well, that's, it's really interesting that you guys are really getting into a lot of stuff about religion. That always wrong-foots me because I never think that we're talking about religion. I always think that we're talking about just, you know, ideas, philosophical ideas, or maybe metaphysical ideas, if I want to be more precise. But that, to me, is not synonymous with religion. But for many, perhaps even most listeners, if they hear us talking about, for example, our show on Philip K. Dick, we kept talking about the programmer, or I used the word the artificer. But you could just as easily use the word God, right? Those are all kind of synonyms. But calling it God places this squarely in the realm of something we call religion. Whereas if I talk about the patterner or the programmer or whatever, that feels like either a way of framing it so it isn't quite so religious or else it's a fig leaf that I'm using to avoid using the G word. Right, But either way, people are listening to this stuff and being like, oh, I know what this is. This is religion. And I guess I have a threshold problem with that because we talked about this actually last thing we were recording, which was the Heraclitus episode. With Heraclitus, we say, well, what is Heraclitus? Well, he's a philosopher, and we have no problem with that. There's centuries of practice that hallow the, the notion of calling Heraclitus a philosopher. But the kinds of things he's playing with, the kinds of ideas he's playing with, fall just as easily under the rubric of what we call religion. And it's almost it's just a matter of convention that we say, well, if they're ancient and Greek, they're philosophers. Religion as a separate category, and this is something I said, I think, when we were talking about Heraclitus, religion as a kind of autonomous, separate category of human experience and activity the idea of defining religion as this special sphere as opposed to something that just touches everything we do, that's a modern idea. Like the idea of calling it religion would not have occurred to anybody outside the North Atlantic West before about 400 years ago. At least that's my understanding that, you know, the religion or various cognates of that word religion have been around for longer than that. But this mental habit of hiving off all metaphysical questions, all questions that do not pertain to observable and material objects and forces. You know, the habit of thinking of all 
ideas and speculations pertaining to those things as religion. That's a modern habit of mind that just goes along with the habit of holding God as this separate issue within civil society. And so to get back to the question of what is Dogen Zenji? Well, if you are a practicing Soto Zen Buddhist, he is a religious figure. In fact, he's a very important religious figure because he is the person who kind of founds certainly the Soto school as it has survived to the present day. But the way I'm approaching him today is as a philosopher, and I don't propose to answer comprehensively at the front end the question, well, what's the difference? But maybe that's something we can keep in mind as we go forward. When I first started getting interested in Zen Buddhism, and this is about a decade ago, there's a small Zen temple in Bloomington, Indiana called San Shinji, which is headed by a man named Shohaka Okumura. And Okumura is one of the great living exponents of Dogen's thought. And the practice at the San Shinji temple is very oriented to the reading, the study, the interpretation of Dogen's essays. These are uh, a corpus of essays that were collected in a volume called the Shobogenzo, or the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. And when I started attending events at this temple, it occurred to me that this was a very odd thing, that there was a sort of a religious aroma with, you know, incense and bells and robes all attached to this figure who is just as plausibly what we would call a philosopher as we might think of as a religious divine. And the idea occurred to me, I thought it was funny, oh, this would be as if in 800 years from now, there was a religion that had grown up around Heidegger and people would be reading Being and Time with the same exegetical intensity as we are reading Dogen. And they would maybe be chanting passages of it and lighting sticks of incense and wearing robes and taking vows and so on. And basically the thought of Heidegger sanctioning all of these activities or giving all of these activities meaning. And it occurred to me that maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Maybe that would be an interesting thing to want to do. It at least occurred to me that it, that was a perfectly plausible idea. I could easily imagine a sci-fi future where Heidegger's writings have become quote-unquote religion, simply because I think that there's always a sort of indeterminate boundary between philosophy and religion that we paper over with a set of assumptions that really don't hold up when you drag them out into the light of day. When I think about religion. So the word religion existed obviously before the 16th, 17th, before the Reformation, which is really basically the the beginning of the modern concept of religion as creeds or ideologies almost, uh, as political and yes. uh, metaphysical systems that you can you can exchange one for another, that they're like mutually exchangeable. That yes. idea is modern. Uh, religion right. in the in the Middle Ages, I think and in in antiquity Religio, religion, meant they used it in the sense that we would use a word like observance. So a religious person is someone who observed the rituals, who observed the rites, that cared about the gods and their uh, connection with the world and all that. And, and an irreligious person, and we still use the word irreligion in this way, an irreligious person is someone who has no, doesn't care for the things that 
they should care about, right? Uh, which yeah. is like to 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 bear in mind uh, what Paul Tillich, the theologian Paul Tillich, called ultimate concern. So a religious life in the pre-modern ages would be something like a life that takes ultimate concern into consideration and that uses the civil technology that's been developed for actualizing this, this concern, this care uh, in the social context. So in that sense, religion, if, if, if that meaning of religion remains viable to a certain extent, then it, the connection with philosophy becomes apparent because philosophy necessarily is concern for the ultimate. I mean, that's what philosophy is about, right? It's about getting to some ground, some ultimate ground of what's going on in a, in a particular situation or in a, in a metaphysical sense. Even if you say there is no ultimate ground, that itself is a statement pertaining to ultimate right. grounds. Exactly. So what's interesting there in what you just said is the, the arising of new categories that both provide insight into phenomena and also occlude them or becloud them in a way. Like, so when we have this modern concept of religion, then we start to separate things or art for that matter. At the same time as I would argue that these new categories offer perspectives on things that do have value. Like there is something to the category of religion or the category of art the, the creation of a category is equal parts creation and discovery, I think. So when, when the modern idea of religion comes up, it, the tendency for a lot of people would be to say, will be to, to discount the category because it's historically determined. Because this category is historical, therefore it's not true. I don't totally buy that. I think there is something to the modern concept of religion that allows us to understand even societies that don't use that concept, that we can't just dismiss it. At the same time as we have to be careful, since as a category, it's a conceptual apparatus, and therefore it offers only a limited perspective. So I agree with you fully. I'm just saying that it's not surprising to me to find that certain traditions, certain thinkers exist in a kind of twilight zone between these categories, because all these categories are perspectives on reality. As for the idea of Zen being a religion, that, that, you know, that's, there's a whole debate about that. Is Zen a religion? Well, a lot of Buddhists argue that Buddhism is not a religion, mainly for one reason, because it, it comes from a society that doesn't use that concept right? Or hasn't until very recently. But also because they believe, Buddhists believe that what they're doing is in a sense very, very different from what Christians or Muslims are doing. I don't think that's true. I don't think that it's actually very different. Um, and I would say, by the way, that the Buddhists I know would all indignantly insist that Buddhism is a religion. Okay, well... Actually get very, very... A lot of Buddhists I know would get... Um, I think they just get tired of people saying, oh yeah, Buddhism isn't really a religion, it's a philosophy, because I think a lot of the time it's secular moderns who are saying that to assuage their guilty conscience at flirting with something that they think is uncool. Yeah. You know, religion is super uncool. Uh, so you can sort of assuage your conscience by saying, well, but it's not really religion, it's really more of a philosophy, which is sort of true, but it's also misleading. I really like the distinction you were making about how it's how people 
well, I forget how you put it, but... Observance. It's observance and the way that people observe certain ethical obligations right. towards one another. And this makes the idea of community, or in Buddhism, it's sangha, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or we might say the congregation or whatever uh, in more of a Christian context. But like the idea of the community that is bound together by observance whether it's observance of the of a, an orthodoxy like uh, correct teaching or whether it's observance of orthopraxy which is correct action buddhism is much more about orthopraxy than it is about orthodoxy but nevertheless regardless you have the same sense of like a community bound together by right observation and i think that is so key to buddhism you can't talk about buddhism without that so yeah. that's why I would say, yeah, Buddhism, fuck yeah, it's a religion. Of course it is. Well, maybe in a sense we could say that successful philosophies become religions necessarily insofar as religion— That's an interesting thought. Insofar as we can define a religion as a practice, which I think is what we get from Buddhism. And it was through looking at Christianity through the lens of Buddhism that I was able to understand or to embrace or to like dig what was going on in Christianity or Islam for that matter yeah. or Judaism is that these are practices. You know, um, Slaughter Dyke has written some very interesting pages on this idea. Basically, he he dispenses with the category of religion. He says what ex- what exists is exercise. You know, he calls it exercise, at least in my French translation. I've read it in French. I hope that's the word he uses in English as well in um, You Must Change Your Life. Yeah. So, yeah. So exercise yeah. is the is, is practice and it's practice aimed at transforming yourself, changing yourself. And uh, and mm-hmm. I think that that... Uh, any, Hence the title of his book, You Must Change Your Life. Right. Which is a quote from a real a real K poem. So the idea that a philosopher writes in order to occasion the development of a practice... And then that's the original, you know, Aristotle, I think, said the philosophy is about living the good life. The good life is the life in which you put into practice certain things that transform you, that, that allow you to achieve your potential. And, and so far as religion is aimed at self-betterment or at living the good life, however you may define that, well, then a good philosophy should become a kind of religion. The idea of a church of Heidegger... That might seem very scary to some people because of Heidegger's associations with Nazism. But if you just ignore that for a second, there's something kind of beautiful about that. What would that church be like? Well, it would involve probably long walks in the country and, um, you know, getting Mm. water from wells. And you can imagine a whole liturgy of Heideggerian practice that would be actually a very beautiful thing to behold, especially in an age like our own where we've, um, you know, we're so uh, far from our natural embeddedness in, in the earth and all that, that there's something about a Heideggerian religion that I find very appealing. And I don't think that would be a betrayal. <laughs> I don't think that would be a betrayal of philosophy. But and, and so in that sense, just to get back to Dogen, I think that if we look at Dogen as a, as a successful philosopher, <laughs> then we can look at him as religious and, and there's no contradiction there. We can just dive in from that perspective.
there's an esoteric book I read somewhere that has this great line about how hanging out in spiritual scenes, it'll always get messed up at some point because spiritual scenes have people in them. Yeah. You know, it's just like, and it doesn't matter what religion you're talking about. You're going to come up against what the Buddhists politely call partial views all the time, right? Right. Uh, So I think the ideas of Zen remain, for me, sublime ideas. I'm drawing a distinction between these ideas and the actual execution of these ideas in everyday life. And I'm just talking about ordinary people, people like me who come together to sit zazen and to read fascicles of the Shokbogenzo. I sometimes find in American Buddhism, maybe it's different in Japan, I don't know, is people who are hiding out from the world. I have a friend who was brought up a fundamentalist Christian who is now the furthest thing from a fundamentalist Christian. And she was talking about how the worldview of her family growing up was one of just being afraid of the world. And she would laugh at how they even said the world, the phrase, the world, the world, you know, with this sort of disappointed dip of inflection at the end to signify just how profoundly disappointing the world is. Because there's these people in it fucking it up. These dumb, unenlightened people. These people who are full of cruelty and stupidity, ignorance, greed. And you come to see the world as inherently fallen. As a place where nothing good can happen. And so what you yearn for is transcendence, right? And I'm not saying this is unique to Zen by any means. In fact, that shouldn't be what people are grasping for because in Zen, it's not about transcendence. It's about the world here and now. You know, Zen and Dogen in particular insists that that world right here, right now in all of its messy plurality and particularity is what we have to deal with. It is the world we're in. There is no heaven. There is no better place that we can go to to seek refuge from this one. If there is a nirvana, if there is a kind of a a cessation of suffering to be found anywhere, it can only ever be found here and now in this very moment, right? Yeah. And yet, if that is true, if things are perfectly enlightened, you know, if the microphone before me is perfectly that microphone, if the room I'm sitting in is perfectly that room, if the discomfort I feel as I sit here in this uncomfortable-ass chair is perfectly uncomfortable, it is perfectly thus, right? To really inhabit that worldview, you would start saying like, oh, well, if the world is always already perfectly enlightened, then why am I experiencing it the way everybody experiences it? as a kind of an endless carnival of fuck-ups and misery and stupidity. The problem then is sort of like you can say, well, oh, well, the thing that's preventing you from seeing that the world is perfectly lucid and brilliant and wonderful, the world is one bright pearl, the thing preventing you from seeing that is ignorance. It's illusion. It's a veil of maya, right? And when you say that, then you have inserted a knife's blade between the world as it is and whatever it is you're talking about. And Dogen is constantly saying, I'm not talking about some kind of pie-in-the-sky world. I'm talking about the world right here and now. And yet, in practice, 
you find yourself constantly trying to interpose things between yourself in this world. This is actually a callback to our Graham Harmon episode where I was saying, it's like Dave Hickey's line, there's always a reason not to show us naked people. There's always a reason not to be down with the world as it presents itself to us in the here and now. So what you find very often among Buddhists, ironically, is they are seeking deliverance from the world and therefore treating the world like it's a waiting room. That was one of Dogen's problems i think one of the one of the the questions that spurred him or like started his quest and got him going to china and studying there was the question of if all things are already buddha then why does anyone need to practice right absolutely and uh if if the world is already perfect then how does ignorance come into the equation to begin with that's a really interesting question. And it's the same question you'll find in metaphysical discussions on how the one becomes the many or how a good God creates a world that's not perfect. You know, it's the same question. How, yes. how do things fuck up if everything is perfect in its fundament? And I think that uh, Genjo Kwan is very much an engagement with that question. Absolutely. Dogen is trying to lay out a way of seeing that accounts for both the absolute perfection of the world as is and the existence of ignorance in such a world. And I really, really, really love his solution to that philosophical problem because that is uh, very much a philosophical problem that undergirds the religious practice. And that um, if, if a monk clues into this problem of how ignorance enters into a perfect equation that shouldn't, where ignorance shouldn't exist, it becomes very hard for that monk to surmount it. So philosophy is in order as a way to investigate what the words that the religion uses mean. That's why any any viable living religion will include a very strong philosophical tradition to discuss what words mean and what con- yes. and to shape concepts. A kind of Talmudic thing going on. And I see Dogen as an absolute genius within the Buddhist tradition in that respect. Like what he does, some of the things he writes in this very short text are philosophical ideas that didn't see the light of day in the West until the 20th century with Husserl and Heidegger and Deleuze. And the way that he lays them out so simply is absolutely incredible to me because how could you summarize it so beautifully when it took like you know 800 years later it took people like tome after tome of philosophical writing to get to the same idea so that's that's really one of the things that make me see this text as more than just the work of a man but a kind of like black monolith document that kind of just like boom lands in front of we of of us apes and then we just kind of have to worship it (laughs) so like perfect yeah and uh so so what is his solution you know um i'll just summarize it i'll read one line and then we can talk about that it's near the beginning of the document um he second paragraph of the the fascicle he writes To carry the self forward and illuminate myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and illuminate the self is awakening. To me, that line, as simple as it is, is just just packed with meaning. Uh, There's a tendency in Buddhism 
given its roots in, in India and in certain philosophical schools of thought. And also, like within Buddhism, there are many idealist schools that would conceive of the world as a great self, right? Atman. Yes. And the Yogacara school of Buddhism was very much an idealist kind of school where the self is the, right. the yeah. real thing. And then the world emanates from the self or the world is a projection of the self or the world is a distortion of self. So he's mm-hmm. arguing very forcefully against that here. And what he's saying is that when you project yourself onto the world, you delude yourself. When you let things exist as they are and appear to yourself, then you are enlightened. There's a whole bunch of reasons why he says that, but that kind of uh, summarizes his philosophical position. Dogen, if I had to describe his philosophy, I would say that it's a radical realist philosophy. It's a realism of things and events and objects. There is no yes. there is no mind required. And, well, there might be mind of a sort requ- that's required for things to arise, but there's no a subjective mind required for a world to exist. The world exists, yes. but includes, always includes a mental component necessarily. So I see it as a kind of like realist panpsychism. Maybe I'm projecting my own stuff in there. <laughs> Maybe I'm bringing myself into myriad things, but... <laughs> but but that 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 really um, that really gets us off on the right foot, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, the sentence just before the one that you read, "Flowers fall even though we love them; weeds grow even though we dislike them." I'm, and I'm reading from uh, Shahaka Okamura's translation, but we'll leave in the show notes. There's a site that has something like eight variant translations of Genjiko, and you can just kind of click around and get all these different variant readings but uh, for, for the record them. i'll just uh, i'll just say that i'm reading from a, a different translation i'm reading from robert aitkin and uh, kazuaki tanahashi's translation oh yeah yeah which is a very good translation good so. i'm glad to hear we'll it. bounce back and forth between those <laughs> yeah you know that just that line flowers fall even though we love them weeds grow even though we dislike them is just such a poetic line right leaving aside what it means i guess one of the things i wanted to also point out about Dogen is that he's a poet, you know, that as a text, this is not just a philosophically brilliant text. And I think you're quite right when you say that here is a 13th century Japanese monk cracking into philosophical problems that were not systematically raised in the West until the 20th century. This is very true. Um, One reason why I think he has this extraordinary telegraphic precision, which isn't to say it's easy to read because it's not, it's very puzzling to read, but I think one reason why he is so succinct is because he's a poet. He just has this beautiful poetic imagination. And that is an important thing, I think, to get also about this text. Absolutely. That's a great point, actually, because um, if we look at in the realm of poetry, then a lot of the ideas that were uh, elaborated by 20th century philosophers were around a long time before, even in the West. So, yes, that's a great point. Uh, But the the beautiful thing about Dogen is that he's marrying philosophy and poetry, as I think any great philosopher would, in order to develop concepts. And, and, uh, well, there's a discussion we could have about that, uh, the difference between art and philosophy. But I think that he's using a poetic mode to do philosophy or a philosophical mode to do poetry that that I think is partially, I I agree with you, is, is, is is largely uh, responsible for the, the succinctness and pointedness and um, precision and power of his text. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting. Again, call back to our Graham Harmon episode. I think we mentioned 
in that episode how at the end of the third table Harmon calls for a philosophy that does the work of art or a philosophy conceived as a kind of art philosophy must become art yeah and I actually think that Dogen is a wonderful example of, of that approach to philosophy. Yeah. I think in a way, a lot of the great philosophers have been examples of that. Plato certainly is. An oh, art. I agree. Yeah. But the, yeah, that's another discussion. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Just to, to for listeners, like what is the, the passage I read and then the, the, the little, the beautiful line that you read afterwards, what does that mean concretely? Well, it means many things and any explanation of it will tar it or reduce it a little bit or limit it. But one thing it means is that reality is as it is. And to expect reality to conform to your expectations or to expect reality to conform to your ideas is a doomed proposition. Enlightenment involves accepting and discovering reality as it is. That's certainly one thing it means. And it also means that things are more than they seem to you. And this is an ontological truth that what you see, and he gets into this later, what you see in this world is more than what you can perceive in them. So in the following paragraph, he writes, when you see forms or hear sounds fully engaging your body and mind, you intuit Dharma intimately. Unlike things and their reflections in the mirror, and unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one thing is illumined, the other side is dark. And I really love this because what he's saying is that to accept things as they are, to let myriad things present themselves, by doing this, you are enlightened. In other words, you can see things as they are. But seeing things as they are involves knowing or perceiving or intuiting that those things are more than you can see. It's kind of a Mm-hmm. tricky thing. What, what it means is that if I look at the moon and I reduce the moon to my mental representation of it, so, okay, the moon is this, and then I perceive my own concept of the moon, which is drawn from my perception of it, to, to the moon. I, I basically mis- confuse that perception with the moon itself. Then I'm not seeing the moon. I'm seeing my own idea of the moon. But if I see the moon, if I let the moon be what it is, so I see only what I see in it, I just accept only what I see. So I see a a silver disc, I see this and that. If I just accept it as is, I immediately know that the moon is infinitely more than that because I realize that my perception is a perception. There's an idea in the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze in his cinema books. He develops the concept of the perception image from the history of cinema. This is absolutely brilliant shit. So what he says is that at some point in the history of cinema, the POV shot comes into being. That's the point of view shot of a character. So you'll have a, mm-hmm. a shot of a room. You'll see two people. And all of a sudden, the camera cuts to the point of view of one of the characters. So in a sense, the camera becomes the consciousness of the character. So the POV shot comes into being. A point of view shot, Deleuze calls it a perception image. But he says it's not an image of what the character perceives. In other words, the point of view shot, in order to be what it is in the semiotic network of a film, needs to follow shots that aren't point of view shots. So a point of view shot is only a point of view shot if you cut to it. You need to establish an objective space and then with a a shot from the, like a a regular shot, like a wide shot, let's say, or an establishing shot, then you see characters and then you cut to a subjective viewpoint within the objective space you've already established with the camera. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. When you do that, you cut to the perception of the character. But because that perception image exists in a series of shots that involves images that are objective, you are not just becoming the character. You are actually seeing an image of the character's perception. The POV shot is a shot of the perception. So it's not just becoming the perception. You're actually looking at what a perception is objectively. The camera's always objective into theirs. Yeah, perception is bracketed in a kind of quasi-phenomenological way. Exactly. So in other words, the way I read Dogen here is that if you look at the moon and you see it from the in the way I just described as a perception image, you are seeing that your perception of the moon is a perception within an objective context. So you're seeing the perception objectively, which automatically implies that the object you're perceiving is not reducible to that perception. The kiss-off sentence of that passage, when one side is illuminated, the other is dark, that's one of those poetic lines from Dogen that resonates in my mind independently of its specific context and even to some degree independently of any concrete or specific meaning. I should point out also these various lines how do you use those lines or how do those lines how do they work with your with your thinking something that's important to comment about is that these are discourses that were intended for practitioners either lay practitioners or monastic practitioners some of them not from this volume but from another the ehei koroko the vast record of dogen they're Dharma Hall discourses. And so you meditate for several hours and then you get up and move around and then you sit back down and the abbot of the monastery delivers a discourse, delivers a Dharma talk. And very often a Dharma talk based on something that Dogen wrote. Of course, in Dogen's day, it would just be something that Dogen wrote, right? And so then when that's over, you go and you meditate some more. So the utterance, the what we're calling an essay, as if its being is entirely as a inert piece of writing sitting passively between two covers of a book. That's not what these things were at all. These were aids to meditation. These were enhancements of meditation. Or, put another way, the meditation is an enhancement to the essay. There are two sides of the same thing, of practice enlightenment, which means that what these essays are and what these individual wonderful lines like when one side is illuminated the other is dark what they are are little shards of poetic image that lodge in your mind and in meditation they come to mean things they float back up to the surface of thought or reflection or whatever the stream of mind that you're engaged with when you're in meditation and they mean all kinds of things. So sometimes they disclose a meaning that is completely evanescent. Like the moment the gong goes and you stand up from meditation and you unkink your legs, that moment of realization is gone. I'm going into this perhaps at tedious length just to sort of give you the sense that these lines, they live a life that is somewhat independent of any particular meaning these phrases do mean things but they also the way they manifest in the life of a practitioner you know how they emerge as it were phenomenologically in one's practice and practice means meditation but it means all these other things as well everything on the cushion as well as off these things are like they're like splinters 
that lodge in your mind uh, and they goad you and they trick you. They almost have agency of their own. This is a weird thought that a line, a sentence or a clause in a Dogen essay can have its own agency, but they kind of do. And that very line, the one side is illuminated, the other is dark, for me is one of those lines that has this kind of living meaning. Totally. Um, That's the beautiful thing about poetry in general, and Dogen in particular here, obviously, is that in, in meditation, the mind is free to intuit the depths of aesthetic images. So a poetic line will come to you in this whole new light, it can happen yes. in, in Zazen, but it can also happen taking a walk or, you know, yep. living your life. I mean, this that's what that's kind of what art does. Like, oh my God, that's what it means, you know? Yes, that's what it exactly. And and then but it's never just that. The minute a line of text expresses a symbol, then it's by definition infinitely, inexhaustibly interpretable. That's the nature of symbols. And since Dogen writes poetry, his work has that quality. And since this poetry was written within a tradition of meditation, well, then it got the attention that any great work of art deserves. And that's basically what makes Zen so powerful is this. um, One of the things I love about Zen Buddhism is its aesthetic and poetic dimension. It's a hugely important part of what Zen is. is, uh, And you get texts like Tanizaki's text in Praise of Shadows, that kind of Japanese aesthetic tradition. It's it's a very beautiful thing. And Mm -hmm. um, it allowed for the flourishing of traditions that attributed a lot of importance to the imaginal or symbolic dimension of utterances and artworks and that sort of thing. So, yeah, absolutely. And I I wouldn't argue that my interpretation of this line exhausts that line. In fact, that line has the same infinite depth as the moon in my example has. So so that's just the nature of reality, is the nature is an inexhaustible jewel. Zen makes systematic that awareness of the inexhaustibility of things. Like, that's part of the package deal, um, that you're going to be aware that, I mean, the practical outcome of this is like, what can you say about it? What what on earth can you say about the Dharma, right? Dharma being this all-purpose Buddhist word that means both teaching and also means just everything. Truth as well, yeah. Right? And truth, it means a bunch of things. You know, what on earth is there to be said about Dharma? Everything you can say, the moment it comes out of your mouth is in some way falsified. There's a, there's a title of a book, you have to say something. There's two sides to this utterance. You say, there's nothing to say, and yet you must say something. Yeah. Coming out of meditation, very often you have the feeling that you have experienced something for which there are no words. There is literally nothing to say about your experience, and yet you have to say something. Because a kind of pure quietism just pure inner illumination and none of that gets out into the world. Well, what good is that? <laughs> you're not you're not saving all beings, you know? You're not you're not acting out the bodhisattva vow. I vow to to save all beings. Stick around. Yeah, and I will stick around to do it. I will be the last being to enter right. nirvana. Like you're on the Titanic, you make sure everybody's on the lifeboats before you are. You know, how the fuck are you going to be doing that if you were just sort of in this complacent, silent meditation? You have to say something. You have to express it to other people. And yet there's nothing to express. And so this is one of the big koans, the big unanswerable riddles uh, of Zen, which nevertheless you are practicing those riddles. You are meditating on them. You are living them 
every moment of the day. At least you are if you were a, a much better person than I am. Yeah, there's a difference, I think, between talking about Dharma and saying Dharma or like uh, speaking, yeah, speaking, speaking Dharma. Dharma. And I think that's... Uh, that's kind of the idea of speaking in tongues, not the modern charismatic idea of speaking in tongues, but the biblical mythological instances of this is that the apostles would speak and everyone, whatever their language was, and everyone understood it because they were speaking the logos itself, right? The idea is that they were not talking about something anymore. Their words were the thing. And I think that's similar to what you just described there. And I believe that poetry, real poetry or music for that matter, or like, you know, true art does that. Yeah. Art, when it's really doing the art thing, you could almost say that's what makes art art. That is almost what defines art, is art is the condition not of talking about Dharma, however we want to define that impossible word, uh, but actually speaking right. Dharma. Absolutely. Uh, I would argue very strongly for that. I think that's exactly what, what good artworks do. So we'll just move on here. Because, oh, uh, but before we do, I just want to say one thing about the when one side is illuminated, the other is dark. This is a very particular experience that you have in Zen meditation. You know, in meditation, like your mind, your discursive, chattering, endlessly distractible monkey mind, it eventually quietens down. And it quietens down a little more readily when you've been practicing for a while and you get used to it, right? And when your mind really quietens down when it really really quiets down it's almost sort of like being able to see the stars when you go out into the desert you know you're not close to light pollution so suddenly you can see the milky way really really brightly right it's like that things become illuminated in the silence of mind and you can become aware of a very great brightness of illumination i'm speaking somewhat metaphorically of brightness, but things are illuminated, just, you know, going with Dogen's word. And yet, if you say, I experienced illumination, you jump off the cushion, say, I am enlightened, that would be an unbelievably uncool thing to say. But if you did, you would be missing the point because who was it that got enlightened there? Who was it who experienced that illumination? That illumination was there precisely by virtue of the fact that you weren't there, that your egotistical grasping mind shut the fuck up for a second. Then who, then what was illuminated? I don't know. Who was doing the illuminating? I don't know. There are no answers to this, but the moment you snap back to being just who you are, you know, your discursive mind comes fully back online again, then at that moment, that illumination is extinguished. It becomes dark. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? That where I am, the illumination cannot be. Where the illumination is, I cannot be. When one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. And that is, quite apart from being a poetic image, is actually an empirical reality that people who meditate experience. And this is the other side of that sort of like, there's nothing to say, and yet you have to say something. All I can say is, thank God I'm not a Zen teacher. And I hope nobody listening to this has the least notion that I am doing something in the nature of a Dharma talk, that I'm teaching Dharma. Furthest thing from it. I'm totally unqualified to do any such thing. I'm approaching this as a philosophical essay. And therefore, as I am talking about it as philosophy, one side is dark. And do you know which side that is that's dark? 
It's the only thing that matters, according to Dogen. The very fact that I'm filling your ears with my words right now means that you're not meditating, you're not practicing. <laughs> <laughs> tradition in the West in the philosophy of conceiving the mind, the subjective mind, as a kind of light, that the intellect casts light upon a dark world and illuminates things, and that with our intellectual faculties, we actually illuminate the world. In the old tradition, in Aquinas, especially in Aquinas, intellect becomes a diffuse, divine thing that exists outside of individual human minds, but it doesn't take long after Aquinas for that to fall apart because of the, the death of the ontological argument for the existence of God. So then, therefore, the intellect becomes again, once again, the subjective egoic thing. So the modern scientistic position is that reason, which exists only in individual human heads, is the light that illumines the world. But what happens in Satori is that because I think, well, I've had experiences that I would describe as that. I'm not a Zen Buddhist, so I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't really, that might offend people or might, I don't know. I don't really care. Yeah, fuck it. Um, but there, I've had experiences where objects become luminous. And I, I, it is a metaphor, but it's not. Like in moments like that, the world does become kind of, the colors become brighter. Objects become more um their dimensions become accentuated. There's no thinking going on. You're seeing something, but you're not thinking the concept of what it is. You're just seeing it. So I remember seeing this yellow house in Vanier once and just being blown away by, after the fact, in the moment I was just experiencing it, but after that, blown away by how it revealed itself to me. And this goes back to what we were saying about I and thou, approaching things as thou instead of it. To approach things as thou is to allow a thing to cast that light that you initially reserved, you restricted only to your own intellect. So you're letting, you're letting the objects have their own light. So luminosity is a very good metaphor for what, what's going on there. And what it reveals is, I think, what Deleuze called pure imminence, the pure imminence of the world, the absolute self-existence of things as they are and the incredible beauty of, of things as they are. So that I, I really like the way you interpret the line. I mean, that when, when one side is, is illumined, the other is dark. Yes, you are nowhere when this happens. It's precisely that thinking yes. being, that kind of mental ego thing that disappeared in order to let things shine their own light. And yet, to say that you disappear in a nihilistic sense would be completely wrong because experience was certainly there. There was certainly life there. Something exists. And the, this gets us to the Dogen's idea of the self. So in Dogen and in, in Zen in general, there is no Atman. There's no self. There's no like solid core, like uh, avocado pit to you that uh, is eternal and transcendent. Yeah. You are synonymous with your experience. You are a kind of wave of experience. 
And that's what the self yeah. is. That's very similar to Bergson's idea of the self, which is that the self is a contraction. And I really like that word contraction, that you have all these forces and they contract in a certain point and then mistakes itself as a self. That's a very cool yeah. way of putting it. And uh, to dissolve the illusion that this self is absolute, transcendent, or eternal is to fall for Maya, to fall into the realm of delusion. And Dogen talks about this when he describes with his boat analogy. He says, when you ride a boat and watch the shore, you might assume the shore is moving. When you keep your eyes closely on the boat, you see that the boat moves. Similarly, if you examine myriad things with a confused body and mind, you might suppose that your body and your mind and nature are permanent. When you practice intimately and return to where you are, it will be clear that nothing at all has unchanging self. So that everything is process. Everything is becoming. In a very Whiteheadian kind of way. Yeah, It is. Another great example of ideas that we're playing with here that we don't really see carefully thought through in the West until the 20th century. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it goes on from there. Like there every paragraph has analogies. Every that, paragraph. We could do a show about every single paragraph in this oh, freaking yeah. essay. Because it really is like an entire book boiled down to a string of extremely compressed and beautifully poetic little, they're, they're like stanzas of a poem. Something that you were describing very beautifully, the feeling of literal luminousness that things attain when we, as it were, get out of the way and chance to see them. Of course, it's I'm speaking conventionally when I say we see them. Who the hell knows who sees them? But that is the condition of things being just perfectly thus, being perfectly as they are. And this is what I take Dogen to mean when he talks about, in the very first line of this text, when all dharmas are the Buddha dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, life and death, Buddhas and living things, um, or living beings in my translation. We are, you and I are talking about this condition where all dharmas, all things are Buddha dharma. All things are perfectly thus. Things are, uh, it sounds weird to say enlightened, but fuck it. I'm going to go with that and say th all things are enlightened, including rocks and, you know, plastic toys that you step on in, in the middle of the night when you go to get oh, a glass fuck. of water. Um, I hate those. I know you know what I'm talking oh. about. But, you know, like all those things, are when when all those things, the Legos on the floor, whatever, all those things are Buddha Dharma, then there is delusion and realization because it become because most of the time we have no fucking idea about any of this. They're just some plastic Legos that I stepped on and it hurt like a motherfucker and I'm going to yell at my kids in the morning about this. Right. Right. There's delusion, but then there's also the possibility of realization. And this was the big question that Dogen had, which is about the arising of the very notion that maybe I should start meditating, maybe I should start practicing because I'm unhappy or something's missing or something's wrong in my conduct of life and in the way the world is. You have to experience the world not as being buddha dharma you have to experience that in order to get the idea that you would want to practice in the first place right right so when all dharmas are buddha dharma there's a distinction to be made between delusion and realization between just normal life and practice right between life and death 
Um, that's also a line in this opening phrase. Life and death. We ordinarily think of life as something that we like and death as something that we hate. You know, I don't want to die and neither do you. And, and so I'm making a distinction there, mm-hmm. right? And Buddhas and living beings, that's the other thing. So the whole line is, when all dharmas are the Buddha dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, life and death, Buddhas and living beings. You know, in Buddhism, life and death often becomes almost a shorthand. Conditions that we make distinctions between. Right. Right. Um, And one such distinction would be between Buddhas and living beings. Living beings are just ordinary-ass people going about their day who don't know about any of this shit. Buddhas are people who have realized it. And yet right? he says that... And, and what's, yeah, I, I know what you're going to say. What's mega puzzling is the very next line negates all of this, right? Is that well, what you're going to say? Well, there's a couple of things, um, but finish your point first. Well, it's, my point was like, I was then going to go on to the second line where he pretty much negates everything he just said, where he says, when the 10,000 dharmas are without fixed self, that's like another way of saying... Uh, when all dharmas are Buddha dharma, right? When the 10,000, that, again, that's a formula expression. It means myriad things. When they're without a fixed self, when they, there is no sense of, a, as you say, the pit and the avocado and an essence, an inherent being. In other words, when we understand the 10,000 things in light of Buddhist teaching, in light of the Buddha dharma, then he says, totally contradicting what he just says, then there is no delusion and no realization, no Buddhas and no living beings, no birth and no death. The negation of all of this stuff. There's no distinction between Buddhas and ordinary people. There's no distinction between delusion and realization. There is no birth and there is no death. Right. All these things are already... Well, which is it? I mean, it's crazy. He says in the following paragraph, he says, or the second paragraph of the text, he says, those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. And then he says, a few lines later, he says, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily notice they are Buddhas. And I'm assuming that most people wouldn't realize they're Buddhas either if they can't realize it themselves. They don't notice it themselves. So there's a, Kierkegaard has this great uh, passage on the night of faith, right? The night of faith is the, the person who's made the leap and who basically is practicing existence as Kierkegaard thinks we all should. He says the night of faith will come across as the most ordinary person you could meet. He's not going to show up with like a shining armor and a two-handed sword. You know, the night of faith is ordinary. And there's something about that that I think is very key is that he's trying to subsume delusion into the perfection. And this is where things get weird for me in an interesting way with Dogen. I think that's what he's hinting at, at least one sense or one possible interpretation of the final passage of the text where he talks, he tells a story about a monk uh, encountering a master who's fanning himself. I'll just read this, this little story at the end. So the Zen master was fanning himself. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent, and there's no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of the wind is permanent, the master replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? asked the monk again. And then Mayu just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. I love that because what he's saying is that even, oh, even so delusion good. is enlightenment. Even action in the world, engagement in the world is in itself enlightenment. Even, one could argue, even unenlightened categorization 
and unenlightened attachment to things is on a deeper level at that without thinking level is already enlightenment. And all the only thing that can happen is this purely passive switch in the mind that's achieved through Zazen where one just clues into this. And then you can live out the rest of your life, but you will have that Dharma. You will the theory is that your life will be improved infinitely because you will never you will never attach yourself to your attachments, even though those attachments necessarily exist, even though when you're hot, you'll fan yourself because it's hot. You will take measures to uh, deal with the world, but even that engagement will, in some sense, in in a deeper sense, you'll be detached even from your engagement with the world, which is a very paradoxical idea. Um, Yeah, it is. I can offer another interpretation, which I think is complementary to yours. It's another way of saying maybe the same thing. And this is not an original thought either. I, I think I got this from Shohaka Okamura. But the idea is sort of like the air in this metaphor is Buddha Dharma. It's the nature, it's the Buddha nature of everything, of the 10,000 things, the myriad things. Things just are that way, right? If that's the case, then the, uh, there's an obvious question, and we mentioned it right at the beginning of the show, then why practice? Why do anything at all? And the implication is, I am always already enlightened, and so are you, and so is my dog who's sitting at my feet, and like, you know, everything, everything in the world is enlightenment. Then why practice? That's surely the ultimate Coles to Newcastle type scenario, right? Right. You're trying to bring something extra into a situation that is already perfect. And this is the defining question for Dogen in his young life. This is why he went to China. At least the classic telling of the story of Dogen's life is that he couldn't find the answer to this question. This was his big question, his burning question as a young monk. He couldn't find anybody in Japan who could answer the question. And so he went to China to train, and it was there that he found his true teacher. If you think about this koan, this story of the monk fanning himself, from this point of view, the younger monk who challenges him is saying, look, if air pervades everywhere, if all things are Buddha Dharma, if enlightenment pervades everywhere, you couldn't outrun it if you tried then why fan yourself? The air always already pervades you. That's a way of asking the question, why practice if everything is always already enlightenment? And the older monk answers that you understand the air pervading everywhere. Yeah, the my translation says, the master said, you only know that the wind's nature is ever-present. You don't know that it permeates everywhere. So he's making a distinction between the idea that air is everywhere, but you don't yet understand permeation. In other words, how it acts, how it operates in the world. Well, from a certain point of view, when we're talking about enlightenment, you're talking about the view of the world, suspecia eternitatis, under the aspect of eternity. Well, in eternity, yeah, everything is uh, everything is enlightenment, but in our world the world of manifestation where there is time this shit needs to pervade it needs to circulate it needs to move it needs to work Hmm. it has an action a mode of action and that's what the younger monk doesn't understand if you don't understand that then you'll fall into the error of believing that you don't need to practice 
And then the monk, the younger monk, asks, well, then how does wind permeate everywhere? And the master responds by waving his fan. What is so beautiful about his response? He doesn't say anything. He just waves the fan. Well, what's waving the fan? That's waving the fan is making the air permeate. In other words, it's zazen. It's practice. What's the answer to this question? How does the wind permeate everywhere? You know, that's the thing about Zen is at a certain point, we leave off theological disputation and we just hit the cushion again. You just sit. And so the monk waving the fan is a way of getting as an allegory for this idea of like the answer ultimately is the same answer we're going to come up with every single time, which is just sit. So, and that, by the way, is the name of, of the core practice of Soto Zen, Shikantaza. Just sitting. Meditation. Yeah. Just sitting. Right. And in this dialect of medieval Japan, there's a very particular nuance that it's not just sitting, it's just sitting. Right. Like a pure, undiluted sitting. It is a purity of action. It is sitting for no purpose but sitting which itself is a very difficult thing to wrap your head around. Anyway, I'm sorry. I've been going off at great and boring length about this koan. I think that you and I are probably talking about very complementary, very similar well, we, things. Well, we, we are. From, I mean, well, there's two things. The first thing I could say that sitting is just another thing you're doing, that there's nothing magical about Zazen. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. Yes. So sitting is like a way, like you know, Leonard Cohen said that Zen was the greatest con in history. And... Uh, I think what he meant was that it's getting you to do something. Sitting is certainly doing something. And in fact, sitting is very complicated in Zen. It's, there's a very particular way of sitting. And, there's a, and it's accompanied by many bells and whistles. So it's not, it's an action. It's an action in the world. It's not retreat from action. At the same time as it's making you realize that everything is already enlightened. I mean, the goal of Zazen is to realize that everything is already enlightened. And in what you said, at one point you said that, and I just want to clear this up, you said that basically Zazen is necessary because although subspecies eternia, in the eternal level, the world is perfect, in our world, things are not perfect because there's time. Therefore, Zazen is a way to leave our world and connect with the eternal. Is that what you were saying? Eh, not exactly. Because that would sneak transcendence back in. I know, but that's a really, really obvious construal. In fact, it's almost impossible not to think that way when you're practicing. And so, although that's not what I'm trying to say, that's definitely how I thought when I was like very deep into practice. Right. Um, I don't think that way so much anymore, partly because I don't practice that much anymore. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shit Buddhist. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't meditate enough. Yeah, I think that that would be a problem. Thinking that way is a problem because you're right. It introduces that note of transcendence. And that is, I think, how you end up little bit by little bit getting away from the true sublimity of this teaching, of this way of thinking, and back towards something that just feels very, I don't know, just very ordinary and very human. Get me out of here. Right. You know, stop the world. I want to get off.
What, what do you say to people who, you know, is, is Zazen, does it have a medicinal thing? Is it something that certain people who have a particular sickness need? <laughs> or is it something that, like, engagement in the world and with the world for me is a pleasure. And what I've written in the past, um, there's an implicit, how could I call it? A kind of like decadent hedonism, I guess you could call it. Uh, I'm not proud of this. I'm just observing it. It's in the particulars. It's in diving into the particulars and in going whole hog into the story of a moment, the passions really, like that one lives a good life. You know, <laughs> My ethical mm -hmm. model is someone like Riesman, you know, these uh, decadent yeah. or at least this character, I can't remember his name in uh, Arabour, who, who basically this guy just castellates himself in this mansion surrounded by like books and sculptures and uh, artifacts and perfumes and just basically luxuriates in aesthetic beauty. And this is his answer to the world. I, I have a lot of sympathy for that as uh, selfish as it sounds. It could be applied very selflessly. Find your pleasure, find your enjoyment dive in and then you're enlightened boom that's it how do you how do you respond to that as someone who is who is a zen buddhist <sighs> with a heavy sigh i don't know i, I mean i if this is where i say like do not ever ever get the idea that you're going to learn dharma from me i'm just incompetent to talk about these profundities you know past a certain point it's too hard it's too difficult right um but I will say one thing. I love the idea of Husman or his fictional avatars as being Buddhas. You know, this is a, some left-hand path shit, right? This is some... Uh, right. Like, this is a thing in Tibetan Buddhism. There is a left-hand path or a, a tantric Buddhist path, which I know next to nothing about. But I know that Chokam Trungpa, uh, who is a Tibetan Lama, who... He was Allen Ginsberg's teacher. He was a uh, kind of an important figure. He was one of the people associated with Naropa University in Colorado, which is a Buddhist university. Anyway, he he's a very important person in the transmission of Buddhism to the West. Very important. And he wrote a book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which I have on my shelf, in which anybody who is interested in the spiritual path, so-called, must read that because it is the most hard-hitting, take-no-prisoners critique of selfishness in spiritual practice the way we tend to make spiritual practice about something other than what it really is and we make it about ourselves we turn it into another achievement trip we turn it into something that glorifies ourself right and the, the thousand and one ways that we can trick ourselves into doing this is truly dizzying and impressive but Trungpa was famously like a heavy drinker I'm not sure if he was an actual, according to Hoyle, alcoholic, but he certainly was a heavy drinker and he slept with his students or some of them he committed various acts of abuse, including against Ginsburg himself, like abuse of power, like throwing his weight around, that kind of abuse. Yeah. Um, that makes him a very, to use the weasel word that we postmoderns love to use, makes him a very problematic individual. But there was... People who stick up for him say, well, you know, there is a kind of crazy wisdom to the guy. And that idea of crazy wisdom is something that you find in this more left-handed kind of Buddhism. This idea that you don't aim at holding yourself pure. You don't aim at hiving yourself off from sex and drugs and rock and roll. All of the fleshy 
temptations of the material plane. Like you fully participate in those things. Like you you fully realize delusion, just as Dogen says in this essay. Those who greatly realize delusion are Buddhas. That's kind of a slightly tantric idea that you greatly realize delusion. You drink till bursting. You just you have lots of promiscuous sex. You you do all of those things that your straight-laced right-hand path brethren look upon with horror. And yet by greatly realizing this delusion, you actually have a fighting chance of learning something true, something real, more perhaps than people who have cut off parts of themselves. I rather like this idea, even though I ain't about that life. But I will say, getting back to what you were saying about the idea of Yusman as maybe a secret Buddha, I love the idea that there can be people who are like degenerate motherfuckers. I like to imagine like, you know, David Bowie in the 70s, like coke-addled, flirting with Nazi imagery, like (laughs) fucking hypersexual David Bowie. Like the idea that he was a Buddha, a secret agent Buddha, right? He's in so deep. His cover is so deep. Even he doesn't know it. But he's carrying out this Buddha action. I love the idea that there are people like that who, like, they're decadent in a way. They they are fully with, they are grasping the world with both hands. Oscar Wilde, I think, is a great example of that. Oscar Wilde, yeah. Andrew W.K., he's my guy. I fucking love Andrew W.K. Keep mentioning him. I like the idea that they are, like, maybe you could go to your grave and never suspect it. And then you imagine that on the other side of the veil between life and death, when all is revealed, you realize, oh, you were a good agent. You never blew your cover. You never realized you were a Buddha, nor did anybody else. Good job. But the whole time you were doing... Buddha activity. So thanks. (laughs) Here's your golden watch and your medal. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.